This episode is sponsored by a donor to Global Wellness Institute, or GWI. GWI is a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a mission to empower wellness worldwide by educating the public and private sectors about preventative health and wellness. GWI's research, programs, and initiatives have been instrumental in the growth of the $4.5 trillion U.S. dollar wellness economy and in uniting the health and wellness industries. Visit globalwellnessinstitute.org. On this episode, we have Max Gomez. Max grew up in New Jersey and came to California with the plan of studying neuroscience. His plans changed when he realized he had a lifelong struggle with dyslexia. Simultaneously, while working as an EMT, he was exposed to the power of breath and acting as a remote control for our emotions. He coupled that with experiences in marketing and a few years post-graduating launched the company Breathwork. Max, thank you so much for being with us today. Yes, thank you for having me, Asim. I'd love for if you could take us back to growing up in New Jersey and what that was like. Yeah, so I'm from a small town in New central New Jersey called Flemington. Population's really small in downtown area. It's around 3,000 people. Um, but our high school was pretty large, so it had around 4,000 students in it. So I got to grow up with a small town experience with this you know, almost college-like high school experience. But being from a small town and you know, a bunch of um, small towns around St. my High School, um, a lot of people going to my high school were primarily people from families where they were more corporate endeavors. Um, their parents were either working corporations and many, not many of them had small businesses or ran their own companies. So I didn't even understand what you know, being an entrepreneur was um, at that age growing up. I was never exposed to that type of lifestyle, that type of people. I was exposed to a very homogeneous kind of uh, pulling of people doing very similar things. Um, in central New Jersey, there's a lot of people working in pharma. So my dad also worked in pharma and that's kind of the experience I was exposed to um, growing up. Which side of the pharmaceutical industry was your father involved with? Dad was on, um, so he worked for a few different ones. He currently works at Suka Pharmaceuticals now. So he's on the side of operations and business um, in, the, in the corporation. So like manufacturing? Um, no, more like uh, sales and operations. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So your parents are still in New Jersey? Yeah, my parents are still in New Jersey. Um, I moved out to California, actually, to go to college at USC, studied neuroscience, and picked up a minor in entrepreneurship. But um, I remember me and my dad took a road trip across the country, dropped me off at USC. And it was the first time I actually saw him teary-eyed because he knew that I was never going to come back from LA to you know our small town in New Jersey wow. um, and he was right I haven't uh, haven't had the thought of ever moving back to the small town again but maybe you know in the future when life settles down a little bit I'd kind of go to a smaller town again but gotcha. the city suits me well right now now especially for what you're doing absolutely um, do you have siblings yeah so I'm actually the youngest out of four so wow. older brother, 29, older sister, 28, another older sister, 26. Are they all entrepreneurs like you? No, actually, I'm the only entrepreneur in the family. Um, you know, they always say the youngest is always the odd one out. And I definitely feel like I'm the odd one out. Um, a lot of them are still based in New Jersey, but they just have um, corporate jobs. One of my sister's a nurse, my other sister is a lawyer. Um, so just like very traditional jobs. Um, I'm definitely the most uh, outgoing, like not outgoing, but the centric one of, of the family um, to go and to try to start businesses. 
um, always flustered and confused my family, um, especially in the beginning of starting breath work too. They weren't really understanding of it. Yeah, you know, that uh, is going to remain challenging for you. <laughs> um, and it just is a matter of accepting our loved ones and their orientation in life. And, you know, um, the entrepreneurship path is always wrought with obstacles and hurdles and difficulties and there are low points and but you go through all that so that you can accomplish something that you have a vision of in your head and for those who haven't uh, tasted that um, it's very hard to to grasp Um, it's it's not a good arena to be in if you need security A hundred percent not. And, you know, I, I always love risk and reward. I mean, I'm always attracted to more risk. I think knowing what's going to come next is a little bit boring for me. So having that little bit of risk in there um, is always exciting to me. And well, yeah, it is like you do have to become pretty stoic when you're an entrepreneur um, because there are so many highs and lows of it. And even the things like your family not really understanding what you're doing is, is definitely a low and hard point to get through. But and the highs of like an amazing deal coming through or being featured in, you know, a news outlet or something is really exciting too. But you can't allow either to pull you up too high or, or pull you down too low. I wonder if your being an EMT influenced your ability to be an entrepreneur. Why don't we talk about that a little yeah. bit? Yeah. So I originally went to college under the assumption that I would become a neurosurgeon. That was my original interest in college. But going through college, I realized that, you know, I do have a learning disability of dyslexia. So that was holding me back from actually being able to get really good grades in some of the mathematical classes. Um, But I still love my neuroscience major. So I kept that. And that's why I studied neuroscience. But originally, I, you know, was doing all the things to become um, a neurosurgeon. So getting all the prerequisites to go to med school. So being an EMT was one of those prerequisites. so I went to EMT training for a summer, um, was an EMT for a year, and it's kind of one of the, the things that comes up in EMT school is just you have to be the person who is calm in the most stressful of situations. So, you know, sometimes there's people dying in front of you, sometimes there's people screaming in front of you, sometimes you're, you're there for a psychological um, mental breakdown, and every single situation, you just have to be the calming person there because more often than not, um, the people just call an EMT or they call an ambulance because they just need someone else there to be calm. And usually that actually does do the trick. And a lot of what you notice being an EMT is that most people have a lot of their um, fear and problems in their head and also in the breathing too. So one of the things that you do when you first get to people is be that voice of calm and reason and say, hey, we're going to do everything we can for you. Um, and then you actually kind of get them breathing too. So you either give them oxygen or tell them to calm and slow down. And then most people feel better and are able to kind of work through what they're going through. And a lot of people actually don't end up getting on the back of an ambulance and going to the hospital. Um, it's depending on the situation, obviously. Um, when it is for like a more minor incidence, they kind of feel more calm and like, okay, I could actually handle this and go to the doctor myself instead of actually having to take, hitch a ride in the back of an ambulance, which could be extremely pricey. What an amazing exposure to the power of breath for you to have as the foundation for what you're doing now. I think that's extraordinary. I didn't even know that it was going to come along that long. And, you know, I think I told you my story before, which I'll tell again, but 
Um, yeah, I did not know that breathing was going to be such an impactful thing in my life until years later after really learning about it. Yeah, no, and I'd love to dive into that. Before we get there, I'm curious about why neuroscience and, and why California? Yeah, well, California, it just, it's just California. Like the the oh, weather is amazing. <laughs> like, there's so much to do out here. People are way more laid back than they are in New York. Um, not everyone's in a rush all the time. And yeah, I think that's the most appealing part of California is definitely that. Um, and neuroscience for me was, I just love the brain. I have just, I read books about psychology. I read books about like human behavior. Um, I love reading all these things and understanding all these things about how we work and why we work. It's just, I guess maybe in the beginning, unbeknownst to me, it was just a way of trying to understand myself a little bit more and my own you know, faults and my own like learning disabilities and trying to see if there's any way to understand that further. But it's just such like a beautiful thing to kind of be able to really understand people and yourself and it makes the world and your own self-care more nav like navigable, navigable is the word for it. Um, so that's like what really drawn, drew me to it in the beginning. That is so um, fascinating and I love that share. So was your dyslexia diagnosed at an early stage? It wasn't until I was in college actually when, oh. yes. Um, and I actually never fully read a book cover to cover until last summer, actually. And since then, I've read over probably 20 books, um, very, very thick books. And that was one thing with me is like I, I, I knew something was, was up because I could never read for that long. Um, and I also would always write emails or always write things out and things would be out of place. Um, still to this day, it's something I struggle with heavily. I, I work on it. But there's certain things where I'll be reading an email or I'll be typing something out um, and the words are just out of place. They're missing. Um, the sentences aren't making sense sometimes. And it is a little bit frustrating sometimes. And it does take more time and caution on my part. But um, it's definitely something I try to work through now. That's fantastic. So it sounds like you've developed the strategies to be able to manage it. Yeah. And just kind of continuing to grow the muscle um, I mean, no matter how much I read, it doesn't go away, but it does get a little bit easier and stronger over time when I, when I read more. Right. Wow. Um, so college was a really pivotal experience. You're, you've having, you have this realization and then it dawns on you that maybe going into medicine isn't what's going to be best for you. Um, how was that conversation with your parents or with other loved ones close yeah. to you? How did that all go? Well, it's interesting. So I didn't, it kind of happened end of sophomore year when I realized that I don't think med school is right for me, but it happened in my fraternity. One of the, my fraternity members who was an entrepreneur himself, um, he's one of the most successful like promoters of, of events, uh, of nightlife events in LA. And um, I remember just talking to him one time and about what I want to do. And he's like, you should take some entrepreneurship classes. I think you'd like that and be good at that. And I'm like, yeah, maybe I'll be good at that. And I remember going and transitioning into my first entrepreneurship class and my mind was just blown. I'm like, you could start your own company. You don't have to work for anyone else. You can create your ideas and run with them. You can raise capital and you can do all these amazing things and you could sell a company and make a lot of money. And they, it just sounded so exciting to me. And, and no one ever told me that that world was possible. So when that opened up to me, I was like a kid in a candy store. And I remember in my classes, like the professors would just always call on me to get my opinion on things because I was just so engaged and so 
into the material that they were doing. And it was to the point where certain professors were just like, let's try to start a company together. I have this idea, like, I want you to run it for me. Um, and that was a great exposure and a great confidence booster to get, you know, that backing from professors who believe in you, um, you know, see talent in you and, and want to nourish you and work with you. Um, you know, I think that's definitely fundamental to, to what I'm doing right now is, is getting that early start and that early acceptance and that early confidence um, with business in the beginning. But transitioning to telling that to my parents, um, I think the, I don't really remember that conversation with them. I think it was like, I was at the point where I was just kind of more comfortable just like doing my own thing and navigating my own path and, you know, not worrying about having to impress them. Um, but it was definitely, I think it was more shocking to them, the kind of jobs I was working on. Um, I think that was more, um, you know, unstable for them to like, you know, you're working with these business people and like, you know, there's no company yet. Like I used to work for different startups or try to start companies or do consulting. Um, and, you know, they're like, they're so risky, like, you know, where are your employee benefits, like all, all this stuff. And they were just so scared that, um, you know, I was going to be taken advantage of in this space. And I'm like, no, I, I've got this, I've got the schooling and I got the background in it and I trust the people I'm working with. Um, but yeah, I love that was that. Uh, the, the the bad news was not mom and dad i'm not going to med school the bad news was i'm going to be an entrepreneur yeah exactly and um you know they never saw that entrepreneur side they've always worked for the stability of someone else and i think they're definitely way more attractive to stability than i am but even within stability or the perception of stability there's really no real stability it's all percept perceived um so it just kind of an interesting perspective that we have that differs. What do you think it was that you said to your friend in the fraternity that made him conclude that entrepreneurship would be really well suited for you? Yeah, I remember this actually. I was telling him about how I just want to influence and help as many people as possible. And he was like, being a neurosurgeon, yes, you can help a few people here or there that's not really it. And I think that's what kind of sparked it. And I think he also maybe saw a little bit of that like extra drive I had in myself to not follow the rules. Um, I don't like following the rules. And you know, those the foundations there, you know, didn't really suit me. And I didn't always want to do that. So I think he saw that and he was like, this, maybe this is more for you. What's a good uh, example of how you don't follow rules? Something that won't get you into trouble. Something that won't be getting me into trouble. Um, <laughs> it's it's hard um i need i think i need to come back to that question no worries yeah have a think on it um so you graduate from usc and you do a lot of um marketing type roles um talk us through that those transitions yeah so i actually had an internship in college at red bull and it was their uh cultural marketing department. So Grace Culture Marketing was bought or under Red Bull and they were doing their cultural marketing, which I didn't know much about marketing to begin with. And I didn't know what cultural marketing was, but what I realized what cultural, cultural marketing is, is kind of marketing with um, celebrities and influencers and putting your product out there and positioning yourself in front of them. So they use your product organically and like it. So it's almost this kind of like you're influencing people without really their knowledge about it to get them to like your product, but you're not really forcing yourself or forcing a deal on them. Right. So what we do is we would 
um, host events for celebrities. We'd also um, drop packages of Red Bull off at celebrities' houses. And the mission of this is to always be like in the green room or before or on stage, we have Red Bull there. So the celebrity would walk out and we'd have our paparazzi, which is paid for, take a picture of them with the Red Bull and then that'd go on social media. And then that would be the way to brand it. And the way that we you know, attribute success to that was every single picture of a celebrity walking out with a can of Red Bull or the can of Red Bull in their hand was a win and a success for us. Nice. Um, which is really <laughs> hard because Right now, um, within our company, like as you know, Addy, my co-founder, we're all into data and let data decide. But with certain things like cultural influence, sometimes data can't really get those touch points or really decide that. But it was fascinating how much money was put into this cultural marketing activation from Red Bull. Um, but that also being said, Red Bull is one of the biggest brands out there. And you spend billions of dollars, I think $2 billion a year on marketing alone. Um, so half of all the revenue goes right back into marketing. So, yeah, and I mean, they also, I'm a big soccer fan. They sponsor a football team in Germany. Yeah, and then New York Red Bulls, too. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Thierry Henry played. Uh, Thierry Henry played there. I, remember, I shook his hand there one time. Oh, wow, one of, uh, nice. Yeah, one of my friends from high school, I played soccer um, in, in high school with him, actually, plays for the New York Red Bulls now. Nice, that's fantastic. Yeah. What position did you play? I played forward in high school. Yeah. That makes sense, actually. <laughs> yeah, just uh, just being fast and kind of squirrel-minded was the best. I think that forward was the best for me. Yeah, that seems to suit your personality. I totally get <laughs> <know> it. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So, um, what happens after Red Bull? Yeah. So after Red Bull, let's me think. Going back into my career, so many things. So I get into crypto for a hot second. Um, so cryptocurrency was a thing. I started the crypto club at USC. I started trading cryptocurrency for people and for myself. And me and one of my friends started a cryptocurrency hedge fund um, in college. So um, he was connected into a bunch of individuals who would just invest a couple thousand dollars into it and we'd manage it for them. So portfolio manager for them. And we got like, you know, a decent amount of money in crypto. We got up to like $100,000 in crypto, but then everything crashed and went to like 7,000 to $14,000. Um, and that was like a great lesson for me in valuation and valuing things and how like everything is just kind of a perception of value and how these companies got such high, these cryptocurrency companies got such high valuations because of their perceived value over their actual intrinsic value. Like you were actually returning no revenue to anyone. Um, but like, because their website looked great, because their product offering looked great, their white paper looked great, they were able to get such high valuations. and. That was kind of a lesson for me where it's like, if you, you know, wear your suit, you're probably going to, people are going to take you more seriously. Like if you, if you dress things up and worry about marketing and the way that you appeal to a consumer, then people will take you more serious. And that was something that I definitely applied to, to breath work early on was I want to make sure this looks like a real company before it even is a real company here. Um, and that really helped us get us kickstarted because that trust issue and that trust factor in the beginning of a new company is so hard in building that. So you know, I think that's one big thing I learned from that. Yeah. And then after diving into cryptocurrency for a couple of months, I think I went to Start Engine, which is an equity crowdfunding platform. And there I was kind of working on marketing and stuff there, but I didn't really gain too much from that experience. It's kind of got exposed to like the VC world, um, which I was already learning about in my classes at the time. So I kind of had a good understanding of that. And then 
after graduating college, I worked for this entrepreneur out in Venice to help him kind of start companies. So he had this incubator. His whole idea was hire a bunch of uh, talented young individuals from USC and from good Ivy League schools and just kind of incubate them and see what they could come up with. Um, kind of like an but, entrepreneur in residence. Entrepreneur in residence, yeah. And um, it was funny because like we we had these great ideas, but you know we didn't really get too far with these ideas, and the management wasn't too well of things. But it was just a you know great learning experience, and it kind of just made me comfortable working with anyone and you know talking to anyone and talking about ideas because you know most people that you're around don't want to talk about business or business ideas. But I was exposed to these people we just love talking about business and business ideas and that really helped nourish me and also gave me the confidence to pitch ideas. Like I wasn't afraid to pitch ideas to people in that experience. I was, you know, pitching these random ideas that we were just coming up with and, and designing and pulling together to, to see what people would think about it, to get opinions on that. And that kind of gave me the confidence to go out and to pitch more often. That's fantastic. No, it's, um, it's so important that kind of cultural immersion and you see it in, in the arts a lot like uh, artist colonies or clusters of artists or in, historically in movements like writers flocking together and uh, making some amazing work um, and so I, I did very much think it's the same with uh, entrepreneurship because you're in close proximity to people you're talking about the same thing you're seeing the same trends you're bouncing ideas off quickly so I think it's a great sort of a cauldron, so to speak, to, to yeah. get some amazing output. Yeah, and one thing that was taught to me in my entrepreneurship class, which I'll never forget, I think it's the four loser rule. Like if you hang out with three losers, you're always the fourth. If you hang out with three winners, you're always the fourth winner. So I always thought about that. And you know, with entrepreneurship, I always want to pin myself to the best people out there I possibly could. Um, Makes sense. Yeah, those ratios are pretty harsh, but uh, I can actually <laughs> see that uh, playing out. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So um, talk me through because you've shared this with me. I've heard it now twice and like the genesis of uh, breathwork and the things going on in your life at the time um, are just such a powerful story. So I'd love for you to, to share about those. Yeah. So I'm about like when I first started getting into breath work, it was about a year and a half to two years out of college. Um, and, you know, I'm coasting out of college, still finding my foot in. Being a young man um, in the workforce is, is very deterring because you're at the bottom of your game. You have zero respect. And like, also there's really not many girls who want to be attracted to a guy who's just starting in the career too. So it's just, you kind of feel a little bit lonely there. But um, I, remember i think i was like thinking i had it all together and i got this job as a chief product officer and um it was great i was like being able to to have this like good title and this good job and but the problem was like the management there wasn't wasn't too good um it was a little bit tough to work with that person and that person kind of degraded me a little bit sometimes and telling me that was unprofessional telling me that i wasn't ready for this job um so that was that hurt a little bit of course, it's also, a very rough work environment to be in. Yes. Yeah, I think some people just don't understand the words they say kind of affect people in ways. And it just, you know, like I said, like there's a lesson in everything. So I kind of apply that to, to what I do today to make sure I don't say these things or re reproduce these behaviors that happened in the past. 
Well, uh, as I'm sure you've pieced together by now, those are usually stemming from insecurities that the person saying them have. Of course, yeah. And then, so that was happening and then went through a breakup after a long two-year breakup, which is, you know, your first heartbreak is definitely devastating. Um, and then my grandmother passed away too. So oh. my grandmother, who was a very um, maternal figure in my life and just kind of like that always caring, loving mother figure, um, passed away. And that it didn't, at, in the beginning, it was, I was in California for so long that it didn't really affect me until a couple months later when I actually realized the impact that she had on my life. Um, so, you know, that happened and then loss of a job. So this all happened within the span of three months and it all really got to me and it put me into this hyper anxious, depressed state. And I never, I kind of felt like a little bit like I was going crazy for a second. I'm like, I, I don't feel right. Like I can't get my thoughts together. I don't know what's up. I don't know what's down. And you know, I definitely need to go and see someone um, because I couldn't really get out of bed at that point. And I went to, you know, find a therapist online, found this amazing therapist and it was a life-changing experience to go to that. And I think everyone just needs that because having someone objectively look at your past and what you've been through and are able to tell you kind of like, oh, it's okay that that happened or it's okay to think that way or it's okay for this. I think it's just so powerful and, and beneficial to get an alternative objective perspective on things. Um, but I remember first going to him, you know, he definitely saw that, okay, you need to find a way to relax and to calm down your body. And the first thing we tried to go through was meditation and try to sit there, try to meditate. It just wasn't happening for me. Um, I think most people can relate to that, especially young people with our attention spans decreasing ever more over time with like the inventions of TikTok. Um, it's really hard to sit there and to meditate. It feels very boring. Um, and you don't know if you're doing it right too. To get that feedback and gratification from meditation does take a lot of time and a lot of practice. So that wasn't really happening for me. I couldn't really stick to that. And then the other option was like medication. And I didn't want to go on medication because I, you know, from my background in neuroscience, I understand the repercussions of medication. Like it's definitely, it's useful for people who really need it, but it can have residual effects and can kind of mess up your neurochemistry and your chemical imbalances and, you know, have these effects that last longer than, than needed. Um, so I wanted to find something to kind of cope with, with this anxiety. And the last thing that he taught me was just simple breathing exercises. And I just remember sitting in his office on this traditional therapist, you know, sofa and him taking me through a breathing exercise and visualizing my breath go down into my belly and breathing through my nose and blowing it up like a balloon in my belly and then breathing out slowly for a count of six seconds. And that was just like something that was so powerful that within like 15 to 30 seconds, I'm like, Oh, like I feel amazing. Like I just, I wasn't breathing. And this is just something so silly that I just wasn't doing that. It's so helpful. So I remember, you know, applying that the day later, another day later, and then just applying that every single time I felt anxious. And it was a really great way to control my anxiety and to, to be able to, you know, stay out of bed and stay out of my house for longer periods of time in the beginning. And it was just so empowering to me that I learned this new thing that was so simple and such a no-brainer um, of breathing and of breath work. And I started to dive more into it. And I learned that there's just so many different forms of breathing out there. There's breathing for athletic performance. There's breathing for sleep. There's breathing for energy. There's breathing to, for more psychedelic experience. There's breathing for something 
um, to definitely help with depression and PTSD. And I was so shocked to find the array of stuff out there. Yeah, maybe um, describe a little bit how those are different. Yeah, so with breathing, you know, it's said to be the remote control to your nervous system. Um, they say that, you know, your emotional reaction center and your, and your breath are very well connected to each other. So if you have an emotional reaction to something, then your breathing pattern and your breathing depth and breathing rate um, follows that emotional uh, pattern. So if you're able to manipulate it in the way that you actually manipulate your breathing pattern to evoke a, a certain emotion, and you're able to send that signal to your brain, which goes back to your body. So if you were to breathe like someone who's in a very calm, well-rested state, you know, a guy fishing on retirement, then you're going to feel like this guy fishing on retirement. Um, you're going to see your blood pressure start to lower. You're going to see your, your pulse start to lower and start to feel more calm and present. And it's actually your body putting yourself in a parasympathetic state, which is the rest and digest state. Um, but if you breathe on another way, if you breathe like some an athlete, you know, training to run the hundred meter dash, then you're going to feel more awake and more alert and more in the moment and start to evoke more of a, paras uh, more of a sympathetic reaction, which is the fight or flight state. So if you increase your adrenaline, um, you increase your, your blood pressure, you increase um, your ability to concentrate for longer. And you also help kind of get blood um, oxygen offloaded to your cells more. Um, so you feel this crazy energy. And, um, you know, if the, what I learned out there was that you could do those things too. And you could also do breath training. So you could practice breath retention, which actually helps increase your endurance and increase the amount of red blood cells reproduced in your body, which is really fascinating. And you could also increase your ability to hold your breath too um, with simple breath retention practices, which can help, you know, with diving, with surfing, but also again, with endurance and high elevation uh, sporting and training. That's great. Um, thanks for walking us through that. It's really helpful. And uh, I mean, it, once you say it, of course, it seems very logical, but for the layperson who's just hearing about it, it seems like, oh, uh, are they different? So yeah. that, that's a great explanation. So um, share with us about your meeting your co-founder. Yeah, so I remember, you know, coming out of therapy, I'm starting to finally get my grounding. I'm learning about breath work. And um, it actually happens two weeks before I meet her. I get this anxiety attack. And I remember going to the app store right after that anxiety attack to see if anyone had like a breathing exercise app that kind of did what Calm or Headspace did for meditation. And to really my surprise, there was nothing out there. There was some, you know, apps that had breathing included in it, but there was nothing that had a whole library of breathing. And there was nothing that looked nice or easy to use. So um, at the time my boss was going on vacation for two weeks, um, hence the two weeks. And I'm like, I'm going to give myself two weeks to see how far I can get with creating, you know, a breathwork app and a breathwork company. So I go to this coffee shop in, in, um, in Santa Monica and I'm like, I'm just going to put my phone away and spend these next two weeks just seeing how far I can get. So I put together an Instagram page. I put together a prototype for, I started designing the whole front end of, of breathwork as mostly what we see right now. I've designed a lot of that in two, in the first two weeks design all the front end of that. I put together a website, start collecting emails. And I'm like, okay, like maybe I will, and put together a pitch deck too, because obviously, um, you know, I learned how to, I've made so many pitch decks in my life because previously two years where I was working before that, I was coming up with ideas and making pitch decks. So I had those pitch deck skills. So of course I would make a pitch deck. So I put together a pitch deck, everything together. 
at the end of the two weeks, I remember one of my old um, friends, mentors um, in my network called me and she's like, hey, like, you know, want to come and brainstorm ideas at my place. I have this amazing person, Addie, coming over. She's, you know, scaled companies to X amount of dollars. She's um, worked at Twitter. She's done this. She's done that. And um, she just has so many cool things that she's done. And I'm like, yeah, of course, I want to meet her and, and brainstorm ideas. And I remember showing um, her the idea first, the, the, my friend first, and she's like, oh, that's cool, kind of like brush it aside. And then I showed Addie it when Addie came over. Addie was like, this is so cool. Do you want to partner with me on it? And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So like on the spot, I'm like, yeah, like I understand, like I'm at the point where I'm just like, I'm just looking for something new. I've been for like where I was working and um, I really like this idea of breath work and felt really passionate about it. And so she said, yeah, so I'm like, amazing, let's, let's partner together. And then shortly after that, she pulls out her phone and shows me that one of the top notes in her phone, what she was thinking about was create a breathwork app. So it's happened to be that we were at the same place, at the right place, the right time. Um, and we both had the same idea and same energy about the, the field. And one thing that we both identified was that the vertical of breath is so deep that it just it makes so much sense to for a company to exist in that and to own that domain like there is no gold standard in breath work training breath work certification um breath classes breath lessons um out there and there's also no um there's and you know there are those amazing um meditation apps out there but you don't really go into breath and that's not their expertise skills um and also one thing about breath work is that it really lends itself well to an application and to a mobile interface because a lot of breath is, you know, the ratios of breathing, the depth of breathing, the timing of breathing. Um, and if you, you can't really have that library in your head, you definitely need some guidance to that. So getting the guidance actually helps you retain that for longer and also helps, you know, stimulate whatever you're trying to stimulate, um, an emotional or physical reaction. So an app made so much sense for that. And um, I guess we both saw that huge opportunity and a huge hole in the market and we decided to go after it. That's fantastic. I love that kind of serendipitous coming together. It's almost like the universe just put you right where you needed to be. And kudos to you for being open to it, because a lot of people may not have been. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I look at my background and I from New Jersey and from, a, you know, not the most open minded uh, community. And, you know, to, to come to California and to work with, with Addy, like Addy doesn't wear shoes and like, she's kind of a hippie. And it's just like, you wouldn't expect someone from New Jersey who was in a fraternity to go and to be interested in the wellness space um, and work with someone like Addy. But it's just, it, it, I was so open to it. It made so much sense to me. I just, um, and it's worked out ever since. So extremely happy about that. That's why you're a perfect fit for this show, the mining the nonlinear path. Yeah, that's our tagline. I love that. <laughs> so um, th this is really phenomenal. I'm really glad you you shared, Max. Um, I'd like to dive a little bit more into what you shared uh, a few minutes back about your grandmother. Mm -hmm. um, what did she mean for you while you were growing up? I know you used the phrase uh, maternal role figure, but to share with us a bit more, maybe some examples. Yeah, so, I mean, growing up, I mean, I think most parents were fighting and stuff. So that's definitely something I dealt with. But she was the one who lived in my house and was, was always there to, you know, be that kind of voice of reason, to be that calming, unconditional, loving figure in my life. And so while things were going in my family that weren't necessarily 
the most calming experience, she was always able to be there for me. And I, re I didn't realize the importance of having that, just someone having someone just love you unconditionally um, and always be there for you. And no matter what you did, like be, always be there. And that meant so much to me, but I didn't realize that in the moment. Um, I mean, luckily I did get to see her, you know, right before she passed away. And I remember like on her deathbed, like thanking her for being a mother to me. Um, and it just meant so much to say that and to get that out. And, you know, it just it was a beautiful moment to have and to thank her for that and to finally realize that right before um, she passed away. Yeah, absolutely. Um, was uh, she your grandmother on your father's side or your mother's side? Your grandmother, my mother's side. Gotcha. Yeah. And where have you been, has your family been in New Jersey for a few generations or is what's the origin? Yeah, so my grandmother was from New Jersey. My mother is from New Jersey. My father moved to New Jersey when he was 14 from Columbia. Um, so immigrant family coming to America. And he definitely had some um, experiences coming here. My father also only has one eye too. Um, he had retinoblastoma, so he had eye cancer. So not only did he have that, um, you know, uh, facing him, he also had his own race against him too in the beginning. Um, when he first moved here, they weren't really that accepting towards uh, minorities, especially in the places that they were moving to. Like they want to move to more, um, you know, white communities and, and more established communities. And, you know, they were turned away from housing in areas that just didn't want to have Hispanic Latino community to move in. Um, so it, it just, he faced a lot of that and that must be really tough for him. And, you know, I looked at my dad, I was like, wow, like, I can't believe he's, he's made it through all that. Um, and still is able to, to function. Yeah. Today. Did you face any of those issues growing up? Interestingly enough, like I, most people don't really know my rate. My last name is Gomez, but like growing up, I was bullied a lot actually for being Latino, um, which makes no sense. Like I tell people that today and it surprises them, but I, I was bullied for that purpose um, of being different. And I think it was a combination of me just being different and maybe entrepreneurial or ADD and just kind of having like the ethnic background was would made me kind of like the, the pick on kid for bullies. Wow. Yeah, it's such a, a melting pot in some areas, but in other areas, it's very similar. I mean, you know, there's certain people who drive with trucks and Confederate flags in, in my hometown. Um, it's very shocking for people to hear that, but it, it exists and it's just so fascinating. We're, you know, not even close to the South, but people kind of have that. And I think it's more of a symbolism that they have yeah. over there. Yeah, no, that's right. It's a symbolism. Well, Max, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Um, what milestone would you like to see Breathwork hit where you, Max Gomez, will say, this has been a success? Yeah, well, I mean, in my mind, I think it already does feel like a success. I mean, I looked to where I was a year ago. I was depressed, kind of didn't know what I was doing, extremely anxious, sleeping on my friend's couch. And, you know, I'm able to now start this company with amazing people and to really help impact people every single day um, is, is beautiful. I wake up every morning to people thanking us and to people writing reviews that are just like, this is life changing, this is helping me. So success is already there and fulfillment's already there. Um, but the next step is you know building this so everyone can be exposed to this. So everyone can know the tool of breathing that you have and that it can be applied to so many different areas of life. And that's the thing, like our mission now is to be a global, you know, direct-to-consumer company that everyone looks to for breathing. 
So whether it be breathing to help anxiety, breathing to help performance, breathing to help sleep, we want people to think and look towards us. And we also want to expand that market too. So regardless of if other apps or people come out there, we think, we think that's great for competition. We want more people breathing and that's our mission. Like that's never to be, you know, whole own hundred percent of the market. If there are other options out there that are better then that's great. We just want more people breathing across the world. I think when you have that mindset where we're just kind of building something just to be profitable, then that's the way to really make it, to really have that fulfillment and care and passion matter so much. Everyone we work with right now just, you know, has that, that care and passion about it. And, you know, we all love what we're doing. We all love breathing. We all love telling people about it. And we love impacting people's lives. And it's really amazing work to do that and continue to grow that, especially in a time like right now with coronavirus and people being stuck indoors and, you know, feeling existential or not feeling great about themselves. I think um, to see that impact right away, um, we continue to grow through this and see people come and be like, thank you so much for making this app and thank you for putting this material out there. It's like really helped me get through this is, is success to me. Um, so it's continuing to build that to be one of the best and best in breath is definitely what we're going for. Um, and work with the best people out there. So work with the best scientists, work with the best content curators, um, you know, spread, spread the message as far and wide as possible. And, you know, show that this is something that everyone can do and everyone has access to. And it's just breathing. So simple. That's so fantastic. And it's completely true, Max. When you add value by solving a problem and you do that with sincerity and make that your ultimate goal, the money will come. Yeah. It was, it was like solving a problem in my own life. Like I needed this out there and I love designing and building products and branding. Like why not just make it? That's, those are always the best stories of entrepreneurial success because you are the target customer. You, and you identify, you solved it to suit your needs. Um, and that's, that's so potent. Yeah. yeah. Well, excellent. Again, Max, thank you so much. Really appreciated having you on the show. Awesome to see you. Thank you so much for having me. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive and Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.